independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. This month, Green Dreamer is also sponsored by my favorite tea brand, Arbor Teas, and I'm so grateful for their support during this time. They source loose leaf and organic certified teas. They use backyard compostable packaging, which they've been doing for the past 10 years, by the way. Their operations run on solar energy, and all of their efforts are offset by carbon fund. I myself only bought tea from Arbor Teas this past year. I love supporting them as a small family-owned business, and I also love gifting it to friends and family to support their well-being. To shop Arbor Teas organic teas, just head to arborteas.com. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-E-A-S dot com. Poverty isn't something that you just define on the basis of a few indicators that put people on one end or the other. It is a complicated item, and it is important for us to to take an indigenous view of what poverty actually is. If we don't look at it from the perspective, from a holistic perspective, we're going to be bound to analyzing it, and then, of course, building global systems to respond to it from a perspective that has very little chance of succeeding. That was Reginaldo Hasled Marroquin, the founder of the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance, which is an ecosystem of industry leaders, farmer and public interest organizations, food sector businesses and cooperatives, and tribes and elected officials that are all working together to scale up regenerative agriculture supply chains. He's also a lifetime Ashoka Fellow and the author of In the Shadow of Green Man, which is the story of his life growing up in revolution-torn Guatemala and how this led him to his work in regenerative agriculture. In this part one of our two-part conversation, we'll be exploring the dominant Western culture's myopic view of poverty and why it's dangerous even for us to look to communities that are materially poor in foreign places and automatically feel noble about an inner desire to want to help lift them out of poverty, what the coronavirus pandemic reveals about what wealth really means in the face of a crisis, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I was born in the eastern part of Guatemala. It's a dry region, and uh, we struggle there with food and our farming systems and 
So we moved to the northern rainforest back in really early 1970s. And I grew up mostly in the northern rainforest of Guatemala, where we first practiced slash and burn agriculture for a few years and then moved into doing permaculture as a way to to produce more and to also really literally deal with the conditions of poverty that we lived on. And then from there, I went to, I was able to get a scholarship, go to agriculture school. I graduated in 1987, moved to the United States in 1992, at the end of 1992, and finished my business management and communications training here at Augsburg University. And I have been working with trade trade and regenerative agriculture for over 15 years now. So you grew up in extreme poverty, but today you question and challenge the fundamental idea of food insecurity, even perhaps with poverty. Can you talk about the relationship you see between monetary poverty and access to healthy food and why technically perhaps access to healthy food shouldn't be reliant on monetary resources? See, I think that we need to divide poverty into various categories before we actually understand the, the true definition of poverty. Most of the world today evaluates and defines conditions of poverty on the basis of material possessions. Poverty really comes in different forms. For example, a lot of the super rich, materially super rich in the world, I have been tracking the statistics on depression, suicide, and all kinds of issues that are associated with, mostly with what we call spiritual poverty. And so there is maybe in some cases you will find incredible material wealth, but extreme levels of spiritual and purpose-driven poverty. That's one thing that we need to keep in mind. The other one is that in a lot of our cases in indigenous and native communities around the world, and those of us who grew with an indigenous sense of who we are on this planet, our material poverty was only but was only uh, partially affecting our overall health. And the reason that was true is because we were probably materially poor, but spiritually super rich. Mm. And even as we, as I go through this, new world I live in and, and, and you know, where, where I'm literally food secure. My sense is that we, we have never updated, literally never updated our view of what poverty overall looks like. When we understood those two levels, I realized that there was a third level of poverty. That was really what, what I call intellectual poverty. And I don't mean lack of formal education, like somebody who has a PhD is automatically intellectually rich. To the contrary, I think intellectual poverty has to do with this incredible attack that has now become globalized through our colonizing systems of the indigenous wisdom and indigenous knowledge, which defines intellectual wealth. That is another angle that is totally ignored, invalidated by the professionals who actually look at poverty. So to me, poverty, once I understood the true meaning of it, it really was the combination. You're really truly poor when you are intellectually poor, spiritually poor, and economically poor. And 
economic poverty has to, for, for people who grew up in the conditions I, I, I did, economic poverty is really way below some of even the um, the uh, federal standards, say, in the United States. And, and why is that true? Because it can, our economic poverty wasn't evaluated on the basis of how much money we brought into the household. It was mostly evaluated on how much money did not go out of our household. And from that perspective, with a very tiny income, we were economically secured. Now, that's before the colonizing system became so overpowering that our subsistence systems and our resiliency, in this case, our perennial farms and our ability to market locally, was invaded by this dumping of international surplus production, which was subsidized by systems that had nothing to do with the competitive advantages or the capacity of the businesses that were disrupting our communities to do it if the playing field would have been leveled and they had the same access to subsidies that we had, which was zero. Mm. And so poverty, it's a really tricky thing. Poverty isn't something that you just define on the basis of a few indicators that put people on one end or the other. It is a complicated item, and it is important for us to, to take an indigenous view of what poverty actually is if we don't look at it from the perspective, from a holistic perspective, we're going to be bound to analyzing it, and then, of course, building global systems to respond to it from a perspective that has very little chance of succeeding. That's a really powerful realization and reminder that, first of all, there are different ways to define poverty. Certainly, the dominant Western culture focuses primarily on the material and the monetary aspect of it, but there's we really need to take on a more holistic view. And also, poverty means different things when you have somebody who's economically poor but reliant on a colonial and extractive and globalized system, as opposed to poverty for people within a community that live within a regenerative system. So there are a lot of layers to this. And I think it can be maybe even dangerous for people who grew up with the more dominant Western mindset to sort of see the material poverty that exists in other communities and automatically have this mindset of, oh, like, I want to help them. I want to help alleviate their poverty because that takes on that very singular and homogenized perspective. Well, it's not only dangerous, but it's the way you perpetuate real poverty. Mm. Think of our current crisis, for example. Crisis are normally an indicator of poverty. Very few are thinking of the COVID-19 crisis as a, as a reflection of a complex system of, that is making us feel vulnerable. And by that I mean... If you really analyze the whole thing, most of the crisis is in our head. Most of the people in crisis right now are actually not sick. The biological part of this crisis is very minute. If you think of the percentage of people so far that have been infected, it's very tiny. From that percentage, the percentage of people who actually have died is much, much smaller. And the percentage of people who have been infected while keeping 
all of the social distances and following all the protocols is even infinitely smaller. But why do we panic? Panic, in the crisis of panic we have, is the result of, of a poverty that is represented by the kind of infrastructure we have chosen to build. We have chosen to build infrastructure that protect a very small part of the population, that protects a singular or a list of top priorities that we that we have to address. So, for example, corporate systems, right? We have built ecosystems and, and, and safety nets to protect the right of corporations to come out and develop transactional systems that keeps most of us on one end of the spectrum and them on the other side. It's an extractive system, whether it's through the fact that you have to pay such big premiums for really lousy medical services, or whether they take that the massive profits they make in the, in the health industry and the pharmaceutical industry and invest it in infrastructure. Whatever they do, the investments are not in building infrastructure that makes us collectively less vulnerable. We have a crisis of vulnerability because we, are, we have an, a system that is poor in the proper levels of safety nets and infrastructure that are necessary for us to say, well, we have a crisis, but we thought through the infrastructure that we need and we have built it so that we don't have to feel as vulnerable. Think of the food system that runs on the on the grocery stores, that runs on this and that. Why do people behave that way? Because they feel vulnerable. Vulnerability leads to anxiety. Anxiety leads to insecurity. Insecurity leads into panic. Panic is when you panic, you run on the store or other systems. But why is it that we feel that way? Most of us are feeling that way because we are afraid. Fear and panic is really the crisis we have. But why do we get there? Because we have a massive sense of vulnerability that is a result of levels of poverty in our industrial infrastructure that nobody wants to invest in because they are not convenient for the extractive mentality on which we build everything. Mm -hmm. Those are different levels of institutional and industrial levels of poverty that are reflected when a crisis like this hits us. Those are really critical indicators for us to look at because if we don't come out of this, understanding that, we will go back to the same old normal rules, we'll go back to where everybody wants to go, and that place where we were before was a system of crisis management. Planet in crisis, workers in crisis, the... Uh, exponential accumulation of wealth on one very tiny and insignificant percentage of the population where the extraction affects most in the most significant sector of the global population, especially in the United States. And then the perpetuation of those systems through the election of governments that are actually representative of only one side of the equation, not of a representative, of a holistic representation of all of the sectors of society. When we only get the corporate interest represented at our government levels, then we are bound to become institutionally and industrially much poorer. And that infrastructure hits us when something like this comes around. Mm -hmm. That's really important. 
because this is how we have approached trying to fix so-called, quote-unquote, poverty in the world. Right. It's so single-sided and it's so dangerous for the future of humanity and obviously, as we have realized, for our very present. So in corporatized conventional agriculture, which is what most of the agriculture system is in the United States, you talk about how there's a lot of lost energy and inefficiency in that system that we may not necessarily see. So again, really expanding our view of efficiency and cost and this idea of poverty and wealth in a different sense. So what do we need to know about the lost energy and inefficiencies built into a system that supposedly is supposed to be more efficient or so they tell us? Yes, so in agriculture, we also reduce the definition of efficiency to the measurements of output. And so think of it, for example, from the conventional corn and soybean uh, sector. What do we measure in, when we talk about efficiency? Bushels per acre on both cases. So we use the acre as a unit of measurement and the bushel as a unit of measurement, correlate them, and then that's that's all we, we, we look at. Now, if you look at the efficiency from the perspective of where that bushel of corn and that bushel of soybean came from, it's really just a, an expression of a perennial, universal form of energy. So in the world I come from, regenerative agriculture, we don't look at output as the sole indicator of measuring efficiency. Why? Because what we are really not in the business of producing anything. We are in the business of transforming energy from non-edible forms on one side, in which are express themselves in the form of CO2 in the atmosphere, you know, all, all kinds of other greenhouse gases that are becoming a problem, but truly they are just simply expressions of energy that can be turned into edible forms. In the soil, we have chemical elements and nitrogen, phosphorus, potash, zinc, all of these minerals and so on. All of those are simply expressions of energy. When we engage in a process of transforming that, which we call farming, and we do it in a way that is efficient, the true measure of efficiency is the balance of energy that goes in versus the balance of energy that comes out. Nothing in this, in this world is more inefficient from that perspective than the industrial conventional production of corn and soybeans. And why? Because the energy that takes for that tiny amount of energy that is harvested is so stratospherically larger than the um, amount of energy that we are harvesting. And what happens is that the inefficiency of energy transformation in that process is expressed in the form of pollutants in the air, pollutants in the water, in the soil, dead zones like the dead zone of Mexico and the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, dead rivers, dead lakes, destroyed ecosystems, dying biodiversity, that is where the excess energy is going around and wrecking our ecological systems. The cost of that is so, so large. There is no way to express that. Mm -hmm. There is no mathematical equation to express this, the amount 
and the levels of inefficiency in running agriculture the way we do. Now, of course, it's more, more efficient mechanically, and it is incredibly efficient at extracting a tiny amount of natural resource wealth and accumulating in a tiny amount of the world's population. That, I give all the credit to industrial system, is absolutely the most efficient way to extract and to destroy the planet, but not to transform energy. Right. And not to produce food. So we start out with this oversimplified measurement of efficiency that really focuses on only the me mechanical part of that equation. And then we use that to justify practices like mass monocultures, factory farming of animals, and so on. And as a result of, you know, really separating the elements of nature that should be synergistic, it means that we have energy escaping from the system and inefficiencies in other ways like we just discussed. So this also means that we have to artificially then add inputs from the outside in. So I'm wondering who really benefits here? Who benefits from that agroecosystem not being able to contain and regenerate its own energy and resources? Well, in the short term, a handful of corporations globally owned by a tiny percentage of shareholders who are making trillions of dollars, not only on the transactional activities that go all the way from the farm to the table of consumers, but also the incredible amounts of capital that goes flows from our tax money directly to the corporate coffers of uh, the food industry. And also another, another large-scale, two other large-scale areas of financing subsidies that we provide this system is in the form of, say, you know, Des Moines, Iowa, or Toledo, uh, coming to clean up all of the nitrates and all of the pollution out of their drinking water and spending millions and millions to do that. That should be paid by the by the industrial food and agriculture system, yet is passed on to taxpayers. Uh, the, on the other hand, if you look at the thirty plus million people who work. Uh, for low wage lay, uh, uh, low wages, go home poor and hungry, and also live in in unhuman conditions and work in unhuman conditions, overworked and all of that. That whole population is literally one of the largest ways we subsidize through cheap labor this conventional system, which has the capacity to pay better and all of that, but doesn't have to because there are people who are dispossessed enough and desperate enough for a, for a job like that that will do anything. And so we are in this crisis we're living through. Those things are getting, you know, surfacing because, you know, large plants, the, you know, those confinement, there's two ways to think of confinement, industrial operations. One is animal confinement and the other one is confinement of people, low wage, um, underpaid, overworked laborers who work elbow to elbow in meat packers uh, with the, idea of making that process more efficient, yet exposing them to, in this case, much higher levels of, of uh, contracting diseases and, and so on and unhealthy conditions overall, making them more, more vulnerable. And so when you look at all of these areas, the only sector that truly benefits out of this is the corporate coffers, the profit makers. Even if you wanted to say, well, well, how about consumers getting a cheaper food? Isn't that a great benefit? 
Well, if they did get cheaper food, that would be a great benefit, of course. But food is not cheaper when you end up sick from it with diet-related diseases and you food and you are paying through your taxes and in many other ways. And at the same time, at the end of the day, you are paying upwards, I don't, I don't know how many fold, the price that you actually paid for for the food that you thought you were purchasing at the at the counter. I mean, you paid for that so many more times by cleaning up the water in your city, by paying for the doctors, by the loss of productivity from malnourished individuals to obesity, vulnerability, all kinds of other ways we pay for the so-called cheap food makes it one of the most expensive things that we buy on a daily basis. Yet, when you go through the counter at the store, it doesn't look like it. And we tend to reduce everything And the propaganda from the industrial system focuses on reducing it so you don't see the whole picture. Mm. That is is a level of intellectual poverty that is is creating these conditions on which we can be manipulated as consumers to a point that we are actually even made to believe that something that is incredibly bad for us, we are made to believe that it is what we want and it is what's good for us. I haven't seen... You know, in the history books, any of us having our history where we were we were duped to this level. I am really sometimes wondering where is this going to end? Because at the at the speed we are polluting the air, the water, the, the soil, destroying the soil, letting it wash down. At the speed we're doing it, and that the speed species are disappearing, the biodiversity on Earth is going to allow for the for the emergence of much more dangerous plagues and viruses and and things that we can't even imagine right now just like like we couldn't imagine what we needed to have in place to to deal with a crisis like the one we have right now i am really wondering who benefits at the end of the day because at that level you could have all the money in the world you could 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 have capture extracted all the money in the world, what is it going to be good for if you are laying in the bed sick? So this is all why you say this idea of cheap food is really an illusion. So first of all, we're paying with our taxpayer dollars to subsidize that cheap food. And then we're getting sick and paying higher health care bills that go to big pharma, which is tied to big agriculture. So it's really all connected. It's a big ecosystem, and it has been delivered. It's no longer like I can no longer be accused of, oh, you are a conspiracy theorist. You really you you, you live in La La Land or whatever, <laughs> which is is normally the kind of response I get, and a lot of people who raise these alarms are normally accused of. But if you look at who owns the pharmaceutical companies that are now coming up with the solutions to cancers and to diet you know diet related diseases and all of that. You will follow the money, follow the money, and you will find that some of these companies knew that their chemical products were going to create certain problems. It was not illegal because they they also control the regulatory agencies. So the FDA allows all of these things to come through, and they are not there to protect our interests anymore. Maybe at some point they did, but not anymore. Now they are in there just to push things through. Then, you know, to reduce the regulatory burden so that more of this stuff comes out, those companies know what they, they have plenty of good quality scientists. Some of those scientists have left those communities and become whistleblowers 
and they shut him down every time they can because they know that they expose the fact that it was a plan. There was no conspiracy from no conspiracy theory. It was a deliberate plan to bring things out, make a lot of money, pollute the the, the food, pollute everything, knowing that it was going to cause diseases. Yeah, the glyphosate, for example, and the thirty-five plus organ the degeneration that that has been linked to it, um, yet denied heavily and and promoted as a as a safe chemical. I mean, they knew that, and now those uh, same companies are buying up, you know, shares on the companies that are and then taking ownership of the of the pharmaceuticals that are coming out supposedly to solve some of those problems that society, quote unquote, uh, society have out there. You know, those are not those are not natural phenomena. Those are not things we should be suffering from, paying for, and all of that. Those are things that somebody should be going to jail for. It's definitely a pretty horrifying realization when we wake up to this. And I certainly hope more of our population will develop this intellectual wisdom to be able to see through all of this. And I think we're in a precarious place where whenever people talk about wanting to support policies that actually help to improve everyday people's health, they're often dismissed and labeled by a portion of the population who don't want increases in taxes or don't want big government. They're labeled as crazy socialists and even communists. Is there an irony there in that in this current system today, it already involves a lot of centralized control and power, also just in a different way that we may not be used to? I think that the biggest socialist body we have right now is the corporate system. And the reason is because they have been very effective at socializing all of the cost for all of the profits that they make. Now, 100%, but very close. I mean, if you think of it, if large bank conglomerate has a problem, we bail them out. People say the government bail them out. Well, well, who's the government? Well, the government doesn't have any money to bail anybody out. The government is the, the steward of the public funds that we all of us collectively deposit in their trust with the idea that they will manage those resources for the benefit of the collective, the collective benefit of society. And yet, what is the government doing with most of our tax money right now? Is not, I mean, if you look at the, 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 the folks you're talking about, most of them are talking about re, reducing support to you know, social services, reducing all of those systems as a foundation of, of government policy. Now, why did we pay our taxes in the first place if it wasn't for the government to invest it back in our social services? Why should we have representatives in the government and a president and all of that if their role isn't going to be to safeguard the resources we have entrusted in them to make sure that we are not as vulnerable as we are right now in front of a crisis? But instead, what we have done is we have privatized all of the profits and we have socialized a lot of the cost because when some when those companies have problems we bail them out we the public not the government we the public mm-hmm. with the money we have entrusted to our government for the purpose of ensuring that we have the services all of us not just the small sector 
it's this whole bailout thing is laughable. If you think of it, who's getting bailed out? The corporations. You know, they, exactly. I mean, you can take the twelve hundred plus dollars, whatever. Multiply that by the total adults that will re- receive that, and do the math. Out of the what, almost six trillion dollars that are going to be handed out. Look at the percentage that actually goes to to actual individuals who paid for that money, who pay that into the system. It's laughable, but if I went out there and posted uh, something to this regard, you know, reject the, the the bailout, keep your money in the government so that they can invest it in our safety nets. If I went and then tried to create a movement to to reject the government bailout, I'll probably somebody would show up here and shoot me or 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 or, or burn my house or something because mm-hmm. it's so unpopular. Why? Because we are myopic and intellectually so poor that we don't understand that we're being stabbed with our own hands. It's really, really a place where I feel like we have to wake up. And, you know, luckily, many, many millions of people are waking up and are become literate about these issues and are starting to take, put their hands into some of these solutions. I'm one of those people, of course. I'm not here, you know, just, you know, talking about these issues and, you know, and living a, a desperate life. No, I'm, I'm actually doing my own part and working with hundreds and hundreds of people who understand the same issues I am exposing here, discussing with you, and working to build infrastructure that actually reverses and decolonizes some of these self-defeating uh, systems that we have uh, been building. I know it's a, it's a race against time, and it is a race against a massive system that is that self-perpetuates. But, I mean, we can't live complaining about this. We need to understand, and that's what we are exposing right now, that we understand the issues. And then we also, because of that, we also have some uh, moral uh, authority and capacity to understand how solutions can come about, because those solutions have to be structural. We are not going to solve anything by sending people a check. The structures that extract that that wealth are, if those stay, stay intact, all that wealth just rolls right back into private coffers, and we continue to socialize the cost of the crisis on top of the, on top of the many other aspects of corporate infrastructure that we are socializing right now. This concludes part one of our two-part conversation with Rehinaldo. So stay tuned as we go full circle in the next episode when we're going to go into solutions to learn what he's been working on and also what we can do to help re-indigenize our perspectives and our food system. I'll catch you again very soon. And meanwhile, please enjoy a moment of musical mindfulness here with The Fruitful Darkness by Trevor Hall.
lonely. 